I've been sitting here trying to put into words exactly how I feel about this one, because the core loop was excellent, and then the rest was mostly just kind of there. I am aware of the fact that this was a bit of a budget title, and I'm aware of the fact that this was a last gasp, what was intended to be the final game in the series, except then it sold well, so now we're going to have another new one, and you get the idea. So I'm not trying to be too harsh on the game. Quite the contrary, I enjoyed this game way more than I thought I would. Let's go ahead and get this out of the way first. I'm going to compare this game to Pokemon very quickly because I want to explain something. And then I'm going to stop comparing it to Pokemon, because this is not a Pokemon game. <laughs> now, anybody of you out there who is even remotely familiar with Digimon is going to be being like, well, of course, it's never been Pokemon. But it's astonishing how common that misconception is. How, how prevalent the idea is that Digimon is a cheap Pokemon clone. I actually mentioned this to a friend of mine literally just yesterday. And their response was, oh yeah, sure, uh-huh. And they didn't actually believe me, and I had to be like, no, really, it's, it's not actually a Pokemon clone. And they're like, oh, okay. Just, it, that's got to be a horrible thing to be under, right? It's, it's like Deep Impact and uh, Armageddon all over again, right? Some of you will get that. Having this kind of a problem is a huge issue. But I want to explain this this, this, this. There's only one way I feel there's a fair comparison, and that's in terms of quality. Because both have different qualities in different directions. The Pokemon games tend to have more polish. Uh, there's better translation, better construction of the overall narrative, the events happen in a more logical fashion, there's generally better dungeon design and level design. Uh, I'm not going to say anything about the visuals, because that's kind of a separate thing, but, you know, you, you get the general idea. The catch is, though, the Pokemon games tend to have several rather serious and egregious problems with them. Uh, some of you may know I've only reviewed three Pokemon games so far. That would be Omega Ruby, Let's go and Sword and Shield. Shield, specifically. Each one of those had rather substantial gameplay flaws, especially related to some of the artifact design decisions that have been made over the years with regards to Pokemon, that substantially pulled down their score. Now, I enjoyed all three of those games, to be clear, but they didn't score that well because it was just like, okay, I was already invested in it, but that investment doesn't increase the score, and that's the main thing I want to talk about. See, there's this thing called I've, I refer to called familiarity effect. Now, familiarity effect is an instance in which you are more familiar with something and that increases your enjoyment of it. That's the simplest way to put that. If you play a custom map in Civilization II, which happens to have the Azeroth-designed world, that will increase your enjoyment of that game. Nothing's really changed, it's just you're playing an Azeroth with Azeroth names, but you enjoy it more. I'm sure most of you understand what I'm talking about this. However, when it comes to marketing and licensing, usually this is a bad thing. What familiarity effect should be is take good and make it better. What it's usually doing is taking bad and making it less bad. This is part of why I started this whole thing by mentioning how those Pokemon games rated lower than this game. Because they were worse games, especially on the gameplay axis. The story was usually not particularly fantastic, of course. It's not really the point of a Pokemon game anyways, most people will say. But regardless of that, the gameplay features just were, were somewhat substantially lacking when compared to the gameplay features of this game. Were a score. Very simple, right? Now, I mention all that, though, because there's a separate thing that's not quite familiarity effect. It's more about investment or interest, if you will. Let me use another example. Uh, what's, what's your favorite fictional setting? 
Not your game or movie or book or show or whatever. Just just a setting that you really love, that you just dig into for whatever reason. You know, maybe it just clicks with you. Maybe it's something where you really enjoy the concepts or the culture or the lore or the characters, the visuals or the design or whatever it is that really appeals to you about it. There's probably at least one, right? I can name one for myself right off the top of my head. Azeroth. I, I just mentioned it earlier. The Warcraft setting is candy to me. Actually, that's, that's not just probably more like a full... 12-course meal of awesome. <laughs> you know, the Warcraft setting is something that I just dig into so well. I love how they do magic. I love how they do uh, the internal politics. I love how they do conflict. I love how they do, you know, the, the, the cultures and the species and the development and the, the handling of multiple dimensions and how they handle the the cross-dimensional thing. I love how they handle elementals. There's so many things about it that I just adore. And that's not familiarity effect. The actual core essence of it is something that I enjoy. You with me? So this is more of an investment thing. Although even investment's the wrong word. I guess it's just something that appeals to me. So the content appeals to me in Pokemon quite a bit. I love the Pokemon setting. I have for a, pretty much ever since I first really got introduced to it back in Gen 2. I didn't really dig into the setting of Digimon. And that's what, the, and I know that's such a dumb thing to say, and I said this on stream, but I wanted to start with this because it's inevitable to compare this to Pokemon, and that's the biggest difference right there. This is a better game that I just wasn't as interested in. I still had a lot of fun with it, but when I was looking back at it, I realized almost the majority of the fun I had playing it was in going through the core gameplay loop of leveling and, and digivolving and shifting up and down and raising my ABI and training them on the farm and, and swapping in and out and just all of the stuff involved in actually making and going through the system of making Digimon. That was the fun. And it was great fun. And there's a lot of convenience features, a lot of good design decisions, a lot of great stuff there. The, but I've... People kept asking, what's my favorite Digimon? I did end up with several which were among my favorites, including the Max Timon. I forget what it's called. <laughs> Please forgive me. But there were quite a few really cool ones there. But for the most part, I was just, eh. I didn't have that. It didn't click with me in the same way. It was merely a very good game. That's the comparison to Pokemon. No, this, does, this game doesn't really compare to Pokemon. You know what this game compares to? Shin Megami Tensei. No, it's not quite the same way, but it feels way more SMT than it feels Pokemon. Even that's not a fair comparison, though. In SMT, let's say I summon or capture, because I can do either, this is also true in the Persona series, I can capture Watermon and Coinmon here, and then I can merge them together into something that makes no sense. I have, like, nothing on my desk right now. Uh, here, we'll use this. Phasermon! It's for reloaded, okay. Anyway, so so that turns into this, and there's this whole method of trying to craft and, and merge and remerge, and there's the triple mergers, and there's all sorts of other stuff you can do to try and build your way up and down to that. The majority of the limitation is having access to the correct thing to merge to begin with, and uh, whether or not you, the actual character, are high enough level to handle whatever you're merging up to. By contrast, what Digimon does, for those of you, the three of you watching this video this far who aren't aware of that, is I've got, um, yeah, you know, I'll go back to Watermon. I've got Watermon here, and I'm like, okay, Watermon, you're level one, but if I level you to level 15, I could turn you into Phasermon, just straight, without any, any other uh, Mon involved. Or if I level you to 13, but I also increase your HP and your, your intellect, 
you know, your mage stats, then I can turn you into Coinmon. And so, whoosh, and so I just merge, I don't merge anything, I just, you know, mutate it, change it, whatever you want to call that, straight up to this one. I had a look at the chart. The chart's extensive, by the way, lots and lots of stuff. But near as I can tell, with enough time and effort, you can move up and down to turn effectively any Mon into any other Mon. Obviously, there's better places to start, and that's you know, by design. But that is the first thing I want to mention. This feels more like a pick-your-favorite-and-then-get-there-from-anywhere kind of a approach, rather than pick-your-favorite-try-to-catch-your-favorite under the right circumstances, then train and breed it, which is more of the Pokemon thing, or pick-your-favorite-and-then-figure-out-which-other-things-you-have-to-catch-and-train-in-order-to-merge-up-to-that, which is SMT. So you can see how three, all three of these methods are actually quite distinct from each other, and involve different tactics, different long-term strategy, and a different sort of approach to how you treat the Mon itself. Because the individual Mon, it, what it actually is, is almost irrelevant, right? You can turn anyone into anything. Uh, I, I've referred to this actually before when it comes to RPG design. This is homogenization as opposed to hyper-specialization. In fact, this is severe homogenization, since you can turn any Mon into almost any other Mon. Uh, there are some actual merger Mons, like the one we did with... Uh, of course, I don't know any of the names. I just know the names of the characters we replaced them to. So the Cloudmon and the Huantamon both got converged into Cloudtamon. You know, that was a merger thing. But other than that, for the most part, it's just wherever you want to go on the chart, as long as you're willing to put the time and effort into it. And, of course, gaining an experience is not a particularly difficult thing to do either, since there's literally a button to summon an encounter very quickly and efficiently. And you have many ways in order to multiply your experience that you gain, which stack on top of each other. Uh, anybody who watched noticed that I had two of the Platinum dudes pretty pretty uh, early on, relatively speaking, and I got a total of three of the, the USB upgrades. So I don't know what that total maths out to, but hundreds of thousands of experience per encounter is what that really ended up being, depending on the encounter, obviously. I think the average was close to like 40,000. Only 40,000 experience per encounter. You get the point. And I like that. I like the being able to decide and do that. It, I, I hesitate to say if it's better than the Pokemon or the SMT method, but it's good, and I had a lot of fun doing it. I also... It, it took a while for it to really gel in my brain, the overall construction of it. I do like the idea of there being equipment. If anything, I think they should do more with the equipment. While there's some cool equipment there, most of it's just straight stat-related. It'd be kind of neat if some of that could be merged into the Mon, for example. This is something I mentioned on stream. Like, for example, uh, let's say I'm trying to evolve Zalok Mon up into Le the, the Crocodile Mon, or whatever it was, and I needed just a little bit extra HP. It would be nice if I could attack attach an HP up to it and then try to merge, and the HP up equipment gives it that extra boost, and I lose the the equipment in the process. So the equipment basically gets merged into the Mon in order to then allow it to move forward. Just just ideas like that. I don't know. The, the entirety of how they use the farm, the fact that Digimon level in the farm regardless, the fact that you can move and, and Digivolve regardless of where they are as long as you have access to the area, the, the menu area, the fact that the people in your backline gain full experience, the fact that if your frontline gets wiped out, your backline immediately and automatically replaces them is awesome. There's a lot of good game design choices here, and it made that core gameplay loop very, very fun to go through, like I said. I do have to say the dungeons sucked, to be as nice as I can. Not all of them. There were a few dungeons that were cool, and the final dungeon was surprisingly good. Both both the final dungeons, excuse me. But like the mini dungeons, just the random datascapes, I get it. You know, budget title, last thing. I do understand. 
But even d despite why it sucks, the fact remains that it, it kind of sucked. And the side quests were noticeably worse quality. Also, even though this is more of a story thing, I have to mention, the translation was all over the place. If I was to be bold, I would say either A, there were multiple translators working on this project, or B, the actual translators spent time and effort localizing certain sections of the text, and then just did a quick once pass. Because anybody who's done proper localization will tell you that if you just run through a sentence and translate it directly, you're going to have nonsense. And even if you try to interpret meaning, generally speaking, you have your first pass, and then you go back through like, okay, well now let's do the second pass and the third pass to polish it with regards to other dialogue. There were huge chunks of dialogue which did not make sense and, and were not how English work e. <laughs> But it was it was an intermittent problem, because then every now and again it was perfectly fine. So like I said, I, I don't know what, what exactly was happening there. Shrug, like I said, I understand the limitations, I just wanted to comment on it. But that did hurt my enjoyment of most of the narrative, I think. Especially since most of the characters didn't gel with me at all. I have what amounts to nothing to say about Nokia, or Arata, or the main character... Uh, Kyoko, the only thing I can say about her is that, first of all, I called that way early. You can see the VOD if you don't believe me. But second of all, she was the least English-sounding of all the speakers in the game. I actually legitimately had a hard time understanding what she was on about in several cases. I think that was done deliberately. It's the one case where it makes sense it was done deliberately, which makes me wonder if someone was localizing her dialogue and then thought that was the intended norm. And that's why there were issues with some of the other dialogue. Usually side quest dialogue or just random dialogue that's not a part of a major cutscene. But, you know, just, just something. I don't know. Mariyoshi was pretty cool, surprisingly so. Date was okay. She was, she was weird, but amusing. Um, but there's, there's one character that I really, really liked, and that would be Suedo. I don't know, I don't want to say he's my favorite villain ever, because that would be way exaggerating, but he was a really good villain. Ignoring the fact that I obviously enjoyed voice acting him, and I hope you guys enjoyed that too. The fact of the matter was, he was actually a three-dimensional, complex character who was a mad scientist minus the evil. There's no malice there. There's no ill intent. But he's also not completely convinced of his own rightness and is willing to be proven wrong, and in fact does so multiple times. He grows. He learns. He adapts. He cares. And yet he never stops being the mad scientist. He never lets go of that core element of who and what he is. It's a great portrayal of that. It's it's funny, because I, I was talking about this on screen. I was talking about this during the stream. I love mad scientist characters who are not evil. And you're thinking, well, what kind of a character like that? Well, Tony Stark. That's a mad scientist who's not evil, for example. And I love that archetype, and it's surprisingly rare. It's pretty rare to see that, especially done this well. He was awesome, and all his dialogue was clearly very well polished with regards to his localization. I only really had a couple of issues with how he was presented, and most of that was entirely in the ending. And, of course, someone like him, naturally and logically assuming that the best path forward to be erase himself retroactively from existence... Yeah, no. That tracks. Don't blame him at all. Now... You'll notice I'm kind of done talking. I, like I said, I don't have much to say on the story axis. Most of what I wanted to gush about was on the gameplay side. But I do want to mention two other things really quick here. First of all, this felt very Dragon Quest-y uh, in a good way. You know, Dragon Quest effect, for those of you not aware of it, is when something is seemingly lighthearted, you know, the surface level, it's very either cartoony or maybe it's got like a lights, you know, orchestral soundtrack or whatever, right? 
And then it deals with the idea of someone who has been bought into a scam and then put into effectively a fantasy world which he cannot escape from because his world has been sh his plat his body has been shipped off to another location so his organs could be harvested. And he's just stuck there until he degrades or dies. Yeah, it's probably my favorite side quest, by the way. That whole idea is exactly as messed up as it sounds. And that's Dragon Quest Effect in a nutshell. Darker than it seems. Not dark in a bad way. Dark in a complex way, in a mature way. Actually dealing with topics and concepts, which the Dragon Quest games are very good at doing. I love it. I love the portrayal. I love the idea. And I love that. It's probably my favorite aspect of the story overall right there. Other than Suedo, obviously. But I said I'd have one more thing to talk about. And that would be just a random idea of mine that I wanted to share with you guys. I don't know the Digimon setting. Oh, I suppose I should have said that right at the beginning. I walked into this blind. I knew Digimon was not a Pokemon clone. And that was about it. I know virtually nothing about the entire franchise or setting walking in. And while I know more now, and, uh, well, I guess I have another thing to mention here. While I do know more... I'm still a complete newbie, so any speculation I have, and you're just going to say, oh, that's confirmed in episode th 13. I'm just going to, I don't know what you're talking about, obviously. I do want to say this is an excellent entry level into the franchise. If you want to know about Digimon, if you want to get into the franchise, this is a great place to start. It has its flaws, and like I mentioned, the story is just kind of so-so, but it's also an extremely accessible game and very tightly designed, like I said, very fun. So, But no, the last thing I wanted to talk about, which is on the story axis... I have a feeling that this is a multiverse of patterns, that there are, uh, let's call them frequencies is probably the word I want to use, where certain types of ideas or concepts resonate with certain other ideas and concepts, and that's the so-called uh, thin parts of the dimensional barriers. In other words, I think the reason why the Eden, you know, digital, internet, whatever you want to call it, so successfully and effortlessly connected with the actual digital world of the Digimon's homeworld is because of the fact that both were patterned in such a way that the strings started started to coincide. And I find myself wondering if this is a normal thing, if this is the kind of thing that happens long term. And given the events of the end of the film, or excuse, the film, excuse me, the game, I find myself wondering if this is the kind of thing that's going to happen again. Those kind of the resonant frequency there returning in such a way that with the creation of the new Eden, which is being built in the new timeline, whether or not there will still be some kind of resonant connection between the two di digital dimensions and allowing them to coexist. This also got me thinking, if this was on purpose, we know King Drasil, or Yggdrasil if you prefer, has this kind of, is, is kind of this, you know, overarching admin computer of the digital world. Cool, I'm with that. But what I find myself wondering is, A, who built it? And B, if they built it this way on purpose, and C, if the digital world itself was built in this kind of manner to be, I don't want to call it a nexus dimension, but that is kind of what I mean. A dimension that, thanks to its very patterned nature, could more easily connect and interact with other dimensions, serving as a stepping stone in order to reach out and connect with the various dimensions of the multiverse. I have no idea. This is all just random speculation, and we don't really talk about that stuff for the most part. There's this huge info dump at the end of the game, which honestly was not very well done, if I'm being completely blunt. Uh, you know, dice playing, etc. But I, f I find myself curious about that concept, and if this is the kind of thing that's deliberate. 
I have no idea, of course. I am, as ever, curious of your thoughts, and I hope you guys enjoyed my playthrough. I'll see you next time, guys. I'll see you next digit time. I'll digit see you next time. We gotta have digits somewhere in there. Hmm.